0: Right. I think it's time for parents to disappear and the wild parties to begin. Not too much chance of wild parties with him watching my every move. Oh, I should be persuaded to look away sometimes. I didn't say that. <laughs>
1: Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman, and this is the show that follows the sixth and final season of the Netflix series The Crown, episode by episode. We'll be taking you behind the scenes, speaking to many of the creatives involved and diving deep into the stories. Today, we'll be talking about episode seven, titled Alma Mater. As Prince William takes up his place at St Andrews University he struggles to balance everyday student life with his royal status and constant presence of personal protection officers. His perseverance is tested when he develops a crush on one of the most desired students on campus, a woman by the name of Kate Middleton, whose presence on his course is not entirely a coincidence. We'll cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode. So if you haven't managed to watch episode seven yet, I suggest you do that now, or at least very soon. Coming up on this episode of The Crown, the official podcast, we'll hear from co-writer of Alma Mater, Jonathan Wilson, on William and Kate's blossoming university romance. I hesitate to use the word adorable, but they're... <laughs> Some I like have, that. Oh, do you that, I world? like that Dialect coach William Conacher gives us top tips on mastering a royal accent
0: Pretty much all the royal family don't really use their jaw So, you know, without even trying to sound different <laughs> You just don't open your mouth it's, <laughs> it's going to affect the way you sound
1: And we'll meet the Crown's own Prince William and Kate Middleton Ed McVeigh and Meg Bellamy
0: What was your fact?
1: Oh gosh! It was. The, oh, <laughs> come on. What was your it fact? was
2: that I was a giant red brick at Lego. Yes, come on. That was my fact. But first, when I sat down with
1: director Mai Tuki, I was curious to hear about setting up the episode by introducing Kate Middleton and her mother Carol. We get a really brilliant, strong sense of Carol and Kate's relationship from that that kind of pre-title sequence. How would you describe their relationship?
3: So I think Carol, she's a fighter and she's self-made, basically. And so I think that has made her very ambitious on, you know, in terms of herself and her own endeavors and what she wants to achieve, but also in terms of her children. And so I think in our interpretation of the relationship, she is a real kind of driving force of the family. and She's the heart of the family. And she defines... What needs to happen when? So the pre-title ends with this kind of feminist trope that you know you can be anything you want, and don't let anyone tell you that there's something you can't achieve. Mm-hmm. And so I think she she's very active in the decision making in in terms of Kate, mm-hmm. but I think it comes from a a good place a place of having struggled herself and wanting the best for her children. You know, whatever values that might be. Yeah. Well,
4: you never know. (laughs) Mummy, a royal prince. So, when I first met your father, he was way out of my reach. I mean, I was just a lonely stewardess. Trolly dolly. His grandmother had been friendly with the Queen's aunt. His father was a RAF pilot who'd flown with Prince Philip.
3: <sighs> Felt like the luckiest woman in the world. And then I started the family business. And became so successful that your dad was able to leave his job and come and work full-time for something I created. And then I realised that maybe it was the
4: other way around. He'd been lucky to have me. Never underestimate yourself. Never think there's anything in this world you're not good enough for.
1: Kate's perspective on William in the way that it's written in
3: the show, how would you describe that? The way we've chosen to portray her and her relationship to William is someone who is quite comfortable in her own skin and socially gifted. And so, in many ways, everything he's not. And in terms of him, I think it's one of those things where it's almost a little, you know, college film, episode seven, where. These two characters, they're never really at the same place at the same time emotionally. And so they, it's like sliding doors. So it's uh, a little rom com. Yeah, it is. It is. We talked a lot about that it's an entertaining hunt without it being too much of a kind of romantic comedy. Yeah. Because also we want to capture something that's real in there and not just a fairy tale.
1: St. Andrews' location, you know, we talk about being a kind of little college film sort of thing, university film, filming on location in St. Andrews. I mean, a lot of the time, the other places sub as the real places, but you filmed in the actual St. Andrews. Did that add to anything that you were in the real place that you could visually kind of help with the narrative and the storytelling?
3: It was a real treat to be able to film in the real place, also because it's not something that happens that often on the show. It's very rare. And so it informs the scenes a lot that you can be in that space with the characters. And for me personally, obviously not being from here. And also, you know, I went to the equivalent of Royal Academy for Dramatic Art or for Film. So it's like the the National Film School. Mm -hmm. So it was more like an art academy. So the whole university life embodying that is much easier when you're in a space where that, you know, took place. Mm-hmm. And of course just also on location trips and rakeys just observing students moving around in the public space. I think we all felt that we wanted to go back to university, you know, and just <laughs> not do our homework and get drunk, you know. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> it's really interesting thinking about how um you know with Ed's performance in this character, how you've portrayed his experience of uni life, because it is quite unique. How would you describe what he's experiencing? Is he able to fully embrace the environment and the surroundings that he's in?
3: I think for William, there's a big contrast between Eton and St. Andrews in the sense that Eton has been a safe space. There's like a sense of protection of his privacy in terms of the people he gets to know at Eton. He he feels connected to both through class and aristocracy Mm. and So there's a sense of homeliness to that arena. And so going out into the world where he doesn't know as many people and he's quite shy, Mm -hmm. he's not trained to just go out and have, you know, normal conversations with people. And that creates a challenge for him to find out who am I when I'm, you know, away from home. And I think it's, of course, it's very specific for this young man, but it's also a very universal theme as... Someone who, at that time in their life, leave their home, go out to university or school or whatever, go traveling. And who am I when I'm not with the people who know me? And one of those people that he's sort of left behind, that he cares very deeply for, is Hardy. So Harry is still at, at Eton and not liking it. I think the way we portray their relationship, Harry is quite envious of William because... He's out in the real world and Harry wants to be out in the real world. And I get the sense that Harry would be really good at being out in the real world. He doesn't feel at ease when he's confined and when he's kind of in the in the world of Eton where everything is quite contrived and controlled, mm. contained. So he wants William to like get the best out of it and go crazy and go mad and is trying to be a helper in that.
5: Promise me you'll try not to be quite so... What? Uptight,
4: repressed, responsible and boring.
5: If you want to be treated like everyone else, you've got to act like everyone else.
1: Now let's hear from co-writer of Alma Mater, Jonathan Wilson. Having spoken with Jonathan earlier in the season about William's time at Eton after his mother's death, I was curious to get his take on telling the story of William at university as a young adult and heir to the throne. I was slightly sort of found it interesting the fact that he kind of went to uni anyway because it's kind of like, well, you're going to be king, so that's your, going to be your job so, you know, in terms of deciding what you want to study sort of thing, doesn't really matter, does it? It's, it's a weird one, isn't it? In terms of knowing what your role in life is going to be and getting to that point where you... It's almost kind of like, well, what shall I do in the meantime?
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're kind of killing time until <laughs> the thing you're supposed to do begins, yeah. which is a really weird position for him to be in. And, you know, this weight of expectation of who he's going to be well what do i do now you know yeah and and it's odd and i think that he kind of talks a little bit about that with kate in uh, in the library scene that they have about expectation and people having high expectations but what's your expectation of yourself when you effectively you're uh yeah you're just buying time before Mm. but but i think he just wants to embrace as much normality in quotation marks again as he can before he loses his life to the role because uh There is a kind of point where your life ends and and the role begins and and he's making the most of that while he can.
1: What was the most helpful piece of research for this episode, would you say?
4: Yeah, I think what the researchers will do brilliantly is lay out these timelines. And I think I remember there was like a timeline for William and a timeline for Kate. And when you put them side by side, you kind of see this path that they're on pointed at each other. And I think that kind of informs the episode of this sense that they're kind of pointed on this path together. There's all these, like, overlaps throughout their life and it kind of somehow feels fated.
2: I told them if they were worried I was out to get to you, I could have just done that in Chile. On the Gap Year Rally International expedition.
5: Did you do that too?
2: I did, yeah. We missed each other by a week.
5: Really? Um, it (laughs) It was quite tough, wasn't it?
2: It was,
4: yeah.
5: Yeah, but yeah, hacking through rainforest.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
5: <laughs> uh, h- how did you do?
2: All right, I think. With my trusty machete. <laughs> <laughs>
5: yeah. I bet you excelled. You seem like the type who excels at everything.
2: There are people with high expectations of me. I don't want to let them down. But I'm sure I don't have to tell you what that feels like. <laughs>
1: How would you describe the dynamic that you've written between these two characters? I hesitate to use the word adorkable, but they're... <laughs> some people I like have, that. Oh, do you like that? I like okay. that. Uh, adorkable. Adorkable. I'll have that writing it down as we speak.
4: Because, uh, <laughs> you know, there, there's some awkwardness. There's a lot of miscommunication and as they kind of fall for each other, you know, misunderstanding and they get so one step forward, two steps mm-hmm. back and... But that, I think that's very true to teenage relationships. But I think that I think they're lovely together on screen. I think Ed and Meg are just very endearing and you feel that kind of awkwardness, but also the thrill of falling for each other. Mm. And yeah, I think that comes across.
1: I also like how you've written The Middleton Family. Could be a spin-off show, to be honest. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, Carol, Carol and the Middletons. She's she's her own queen. She is,
4: yeah. How would you describe the family that we meet in the show? I mean, they, you know, they're they're very tight. You know, you see how supportive they are, and when um, Kate's doing her exams and Michael bringing her, you know, her breakfast and wrapping it up for her to go. And they're, you know, they're a very supporting, loving family. But they're from a world that's very different to the royals. And it was fun finding those kind of details. And I mean, there's so much around Kate at the time and there was so much class snobbery going on around mm. them. And, you know, on paper, there's kind of overlaps between their worlds. Kate went to Marlborough, which is quite a elite private school. And I think Eugenie went there, Prince Andrew's daughter. I think Carol says in, in, in that opening, opening scene that Michael, Kate's father's, grandmother was mixed in the same social circles as the Queen Mother and so there's you know the, in, on paper there's a kind of overlap between those worlds but you know such as the British class system that it's very rigid and snobby. Uh, very snobby I mean there was some really sniffy lines like from journalists at the time about kate and i think one said she can trace her lineage back to the suburbanization of berkshire there's all these kind of really sniffy snooty kind of attitudes towards her and you know the media certainly and probably a lot of the social circles that william might have mixed in although i think the the you know i think she was welcomed into the royal family actually and So yeah, so I think Kate being probably viewed by members of the aristocracy and the upper class as definitely of the middle classes, and even Carol probably with her background of what would be called a working class background, even though she'd risen to become a very successful businesswoman Mm and entrepreneur, it's hard to escape class in Britain.
5: What's her name? Kate. Beautiful Kate. Puts the Kate in intoxicating. (laughs) Oh, that was good. Yeah, yeah. Mother runs some kind of party business and used to be, wait for it, an air
1: hostess. Still to come on this episode of The Crown, the official podcast, Meg Bellamy and Ed McVeigh, who debut as William and Kate in this season. Before that, though, it's time to hear from someone I've been dying to meet ever since we started this podcast. The Crown's longtime dialect coach, William Conacher. Listen, it's been so lovely over, you know, the past couple of seasons as we've been doing this podcast to hear how important your work has been to to so many people's process to, to finding, you know, the characters that they're playing. And for people listening, it'd be really nice to kind of talk about what the role of a dialect coach is. But before we get to that, how did you come to be part of The Crown?
0: I had done the play, The Audience, with Stephen Daudry and Peter Morgan. And Andy Harris was a producer of that, Andy Harris of Left Bank. And it was when we knew that that was a success that they started talking about pitching a TV series. And so that's how I first got involved. Mm -hmm. I'd done the play. And then um, Stephen Dordrie and I have worked together for too long. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, he said, well, obviously, you'll have to come and do the voices on this. And we didn't really know exactly what that that meant.
1: Yeah. Did you imagine that it would be this... This beast, this thing that would A, be so successful, but B, continue for six seasons. Well, uh,
0: they did always say that they wanted it to be six seasons. That was always the the scope of it. Mm. But you never know if that's yeah. actually going to happen. And yeah. I was so naive because normally TV shows don't have a budget for a dialect coach. It's normally quite big films that have it full time. And I'd only ever consulted on TV shows before. And so I didn't really know how it could possibly work. And so in the first season, I wasn't there for half of it because I only realised halfway through they were going to have two units shooting at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, oh, well, I see one unit's in Gloucestershire and and I'm in Elstree, So so I missed half of it. So it was only by season two I said, I, I need some help. I imagine that
1: the role was quite complex of what a dialect coach and specific to the character, the actor, mm. the production the location, all that kind of thing. But for people listening who are kind of going, what, you know, what, what are the skills? What is, what's your job? What do you do?
0: It, I mean, it's different with each person that you work with, yeah. like you say, it's very interpersonal. But essentially what I do is listen to the real voice, if there is a real voice or find something approaching the real voice if it's fictional. Yeah, And then I break it down into teachable components. So I'm not just, you know, in the film of your life, I wouldn't just say, listen to Edith Bowman interviews and copy. <laughs> you know, I'd, yeah. I'd find six or seven salient points and say, just do this, don't change anything else. So you just do one thing at a time. It's, I've said this lots of times as well, it's more like learning a piece of choreography than it is like learning a song. It's muscular, it's muscle memory, it's mm. tiny little intricate changes that you make. It's not copying. It's not copying. No.
1: With this show though, in terms of, you know, so many characters, there is, so much noise around a lot of these characters. We think we know what they sound like. We have vague memories. Is there a process when you start on an episode or a season with someone?
0: Not not a uniform starting point. I mean, my, my own personal starting point would be to go to the research department and say, do you have any clips of them speaking in this particular year Mm. that we're dealing with. And at this point, I really should talk about Victoria Stable, who very sadly passed away while we were making this season. I literally could never have done this job without her because she provided me with such specific material that I never could have found myself. You know, you can get so far on YouTube, but somebody with that, that depth of knowledge and the contacts that she had, for example, Harold Wilson's wife, Mary, was a small character in season three, yeah. and she did have a little bit of dialogue. And that's how meticulous we are. You know, I said, so so what did Mary Wilson sound like? And um, the next thing I knew, a, a vinyl LP of her <laughs> reading stories arrived at my house from Victoria. Wow. You know I mean it was it was just amazing the stuff so that's where we started with the real source material. Has
1: there been specific characters over the season for you that have been not challenging, but I guess I, and I am but I might yeah challenging because I imagine challenging for different reasons like a character where you actually there is very little there to go on. Or a character where it takes a bit of work to get it right with that actor or what, whatever it is. What are those kind of moments that really mm. resonate with you over the, the show?
0: I think the clearest way I can put it is that it's the fact that it's gotten closer to modern times is, yeah. is a double-edged sword. It's both easier in that the sounds become less extreme. Mm-hmm. But because everything's just that little bit closer to home, there's mm-hmm. less to hang your hat on as well. You know, if you're 25 now... And you listen to the interviews of Prince William at 25. You know, there are some things, but it's not like listening to the Queen for Claire Foy yeah. at 25. It's yeah. not such an extreme thing. And an, an extremity of sound is easier.
1: Well, that's the thing that I find fascinating is that when you kind of think about it, there is so much that's changed that influences how they talk. You know, the the, the language that they use is different from season one through yeah. to now there's there's less kind of formality around things as well
0: i love it when we get the royals to swear on the show (laughs) (laughs) because obviously they do well you know
1: yeah okay so that's interesting because there's not going to be any recorded you know kind of uh, conversations of that happening you get to choose how they swear
0: i know that's fun we do have a a judicious amount of swearing that i think who swears the most in the show yeah William and Harry have a little bit of swearing. <laughs> um, I mean, the opening, actually, I would remind you, the opening scene of The Crown season one was Ben Miles uh, as Peter Townsend helping George VI to get dressed. And he tells a limerick that ends with the worst <laughs> word. <laughs> Probably I can't even say on here.
1: <laughs> Let's talk about some specific characters. Let's start with Queen. Yeah. <laughs> Why, not? Why not? Let's start with the Queen. What's the essence to this character? Is there, a, is there a pull through from those three actresses that have played her? Four, yes, actually, really. <clears throat> there yes. were
0: certain uniform things. I really loved the way the Queen hung on to the endings of ing words. For me, doing and meeting. <laughs> something about that every that was, letter yeah sort of was a, was a way in the younger iteration of the Queen had such a forward do and you which definitely relaxed by um, by the 70s, 80s, 90s mm. uh, of course things that didn't change were her saying orphan and gone <laughs> and off and lost loads of fun things and pretty much all the royal family don't really Use their jaw. So, I always say to somebody, you know, without even trying to sound differently, <laughs> you just don't open your mouth. It's <laughs> it's going to affect the way you sound. And then there's another thing that I I really love the difference between the younger generation and the older generation is that all of them, the Queen Philip, Margaret, Queen Mother, there's a tone of voice they have at the end of sentences, which is almost as if they're surprised yeah. there's an upward inflection that makes it's it sort of it has two purposes it, one makes them feel very front-footed and energized and the other makes the listener feel like I should have known this already <laughs> and and it was diana really who brought in a more sort of sympathetic tone yeah and those inflections start going down
1: Oh and, gosh, and I,
0: that's... I that's that's a sort of um subliminal thing that is so fun for an actor yeah to play so I do try and get um I mean Helena Bonham Carter with Margaret I think was the one, <laughs> the one who perhaps took that note on board the best yeah. sort, of, sort of the thing about Margaret is that because she was often inebriated as well you can bring in the surprise and mix it with it's like, confusion <laughs> <laughs>
1: I find it interesting with Charles because we've got, we've had these great, you know, Josh and Dominic, particularly of very different portrayals of, of Charles, but also really brilliant casting with regards to where the character is when they play him. Yeah. But I think what's been interesting to see the difference between the two and here, how they share tips with each other and, and kind of similar influences.
0: Yes. And with Dominic, um, one of the things we did when he started was get him to work on scenes that Josh had already shot, mm-hmm. just to experience the more vulnerable. We particularly got him to do that scene in season three when he's done his investiture and in gone a Welsh. bit off off piece with yeah. the speech, and then he gets a massive tell off from Olivia Coleman. We got Dominic, me and Polly got Dominic to work on that scene just to find um, um the the boy. That's that so been. interesting.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. And how does that help then in terms of where he is now, do you think?
0: Dominic is a, an alpha, Charles, and needed that layer of vulnerability underneath.
1: Mm. Are there and Charles' just, essentials when it comes to voice?
0: Oh, there are Charles' essentials. Charles, <laughs> um, Charles lifts the upper left corner of his lip a lot and just. It just influences what he says and he often stops mid-sentence and then will say a word you think you can't possibly be been thinking about that. That was the only word you could possibly use.
1: You could have done I mean, anyone's ADR.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I have.
1: <laughs> oh, there's an insight, there's an insight. <laughs>
0: ADR it's, is my favourite. Is it? Bit. Are yeah. you
1: are you in there then oh, with them? Yeah. Are you?
0: Yeah. Do
1: you mind explaining no, what ADR... so ADR
0: stands for additional dialogue recording. Mm-hmm. And it is done for a variety of reasons, usually not to do with accent, normally to do with there being footsteps of the extras all over the dialogue or a plane. Yeah.
1: Um, Diana. Mm. Emma and Elizabeth. Were those two different, obviously two different actresses, two brilliant performances as this character but again two different very different stages in her life Hmm. what was the approach with Emma versus the approach in the work with Elizabeth if there wasn't much of a difference
0: well there was a big difference but it was more technical because Emma despite having quite a big South African influence on her in her family life didn't have that accent Mm -hmm. and is not a million miles away from the way the Diana would have sounded. So again, like I said earlier, sometimes the ones that are closer to home are harder. So it was it was subtler yeah. with Emma, with Elizabeth, who is Australian. That's a different task, you know. If there's there's the layer of taking the Australian out of the accent, and then there's the other layer of the things that made it particular to Diana. Yeah. I did speak to them both about having said the royal family don't open their mouths at all. Diana really did. You know, she had this big sort of jaw drop, <laughs> yeah. and um, that minor key. It was um, a brilliant skill of hers in evoking sympathy in the people she's listening to. And then she'd also get this kind of giggle as well a lot of the time. Diana, you could hear her doing that. Whether uh, you know when she's doing hospital visits, and and she does a huge one in those in those tapes that were leaked from the voice coach. He says to her, um, "What would you be doing, ma'am, if you weren't?" If you weren't working for this charity, I can't remember the exact thing. She, yeah. just, she just says, um, well, "I do it because I haven't got anything else to do." <laughs> and we listen to that a lot, you know, because it's 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 easy to see Diana as a tragic figure. But yeah. I think she was a huge amount of fun, and mm. everybody talked about that, you know, that she went to those visit those AIDS patients and children's hospitals and spread joy. Yeah. So it's finding the joy of Diana.
1: Yeah. It's, I hadn't thought about that idea of kind of having to erase someone's natural accent to get a blank canvas. to Oh,
0: it's complete. I mean, it's a huge technical achievement. You know, it's not just the royal family. When I look back on it now, remember John Lithgow as Winston Churchill? Yeah. That was one of my absolute favourites. <laughs> and Jared Harris as the king. Oh, yeah. And that stammer. That was amazing. Pip Torrens who played oh, um, uh, Tommy Lassels. Yeah, yeah Lassels, you know, yeah. Characters like that were so important for reinforcing the backbone of the mm-hmm. of the tradition. Yeah. And without without people like Pip and Will Keane, uh, we wouldn't have had that sort of stiff, authoritarian
1: situation
0: yeah. that the royal family had to manoeuvre their lives around.
1: And from that, you know, someone like Imelda to the newbies on, on set. Let's talk about Megan and Ed yeah. in particular and, and sort of working, you know, two things, working with them to find those characters, but also working with them as new talent. And yeah, I imagine they've never worked with a dialect coach
0: before. No, so it's... but I mean, I have to say the process wasn't that different, just a little bit more time consuming, I mm-hmm. think, just spent more time with them. I didn't uh, really have to treat them in any different way to to anybody else. But again, it's finding the essences of... Um, like Harry has an interesting voice. He's got this slightly kind of breathy thing going on. I can't really do it very well, <laughs> but 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 like he he talks in a very gentle way. almost slightly hoarse. That's better. And it, it's and a good it, night out the night before. Well, it probably. might be that, but it's also but it's also like I, like I always feel. What I said to Luther was he's like slightly shy of being too forceful, you know because. Yeah, massively affected by his, yeah. <laughs> it's
1: infectious.
0: <laughs> massively infected by his background mm-hmm. and um, the army. He's seen stuff. Yeah, you know. I, I just think Harry. He comes across as a very gentle soul. Um, Kate Middleton. Yes, I had never really heard her speak. I feel.
1: Do you know what I think that too? I haven't. I don't know what her her accent is, and has her accent changed from when she was. Kate Middleton to being Princess
0: Kate? I don't think so. Not no? significantly. I mean, the only real things we had to compare to the, was the footage of the announcement of the engagement because before that, there isn't very much. I mean, why would there be footage of Kate Middleton before she? <laughs> she... she <laughs> she's got this very kind of what I would describe as tight way of speaking, uh, and, and has a lot of what we call vocal fry at the end of her, of her sentences. You know, she talk about her parents and the experience of her, you know, she's, she is, um, <laughs> in many ways more extreme than Williams accent in, in that, you know, the, the, she's very typical of that sort of, um, public school educated. But this, this, This thing, you know, is the only way you can achieve those sounds is if you really, you know, tense your dimples a little bit.
1: Yeah. I'm going to be going home on the train (laughs) trying to do all these different voices. Have you got something you're most proud of from the season?
0: Rather than there being a specific character or a specific moment, I think that what it has moved me on the most as an artist is that I know that I can create a tone of voice. For a piece of drama, I was allowed to do that in a way that I hadn't been previously, or had just hadn't been given the opportunity mm-hmm. to do, or even perhaps that people would have considered that was a thing. And um, I'd like to think that it's moved dialect coaching on because I think now you have Lord of the Rings, you have Downton Abbey, they have a full-time dialect coach on Bridgerton. I think it's it really has become a a role that people take more seriously now, and you can you can really input into the design of the sound of the show in Mm. almost the same way as a production designer does.
1: And now back to episode seven. This episode is one that many Crown fans like me have been looking forward to for a long time. The origin story of a historic romance. So it was a real treat to be able to sit down with Ed McVeigh, who plays Prince William in the second half of the season, and Meg Bellamy, who plays Kate Middleton, on set just a few days after they wrapped filming. Can I please take you back to this journey into The Crown, if you don't mind, of how you got the parts and what that journey was for you. Meg, do you want to start?
2: Well, it was for the role of Kate and for William, I think, but- You
5: auditioned myself. for the role of William? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's I who the winning. other person was. Oh, I know. <laughs> oh, wow, sorry.
2: <laughs> but anyway. Um, you would have
5: been a much better winner. Oh,
2: yeah, right, and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, for Kate, it was an open call on things like Twitter and, and TikTok, and it was like an international call. Mm. Um, and the first round was just to, to send in a self-tape Basically saying something about you, like your height and the fact. So it did that.
5: What was your fact?
2: Oh gosh, it was
5: Come on. Oh <laughs> what was your it fact? I said
2: I was a giant red brick at legoland Yes, come on. That was my fact. Hold wow. on. Wow. You were a giant is, red brick at yeah. yeah, How much time do you have That's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. And then, you know, the rounds kind of started and then you do your first in person. Um, and then we got picked actually to read for Will and Kate at the read-through of season six, you know, with all the cast and it was still an audition. So that was like a crazy step into what it would be like if we had the role. And then afterwards you go back to like being in a room full of other Kates and, you know, doing chemistry reads. So it was a real whirlwind, Mm. but amazing. And by the end of it, it was like relief and obviously huge excitement. And how much had you done beforehand?
1: In like terms active,
2: of auditions, acting. oh, acting. I mean, nothing professional. No way. Yeah, no, I had just done like amateur theatre, so school plays and, and things oh, yeah. like that. So it really was lucky. And I'd always wanted to be an actor. And I was kind of on a on a gap year, like half working, half doing short films and, and student th- films and things like that. But uh, yeah, this is my first gig. Wow. It's not a bad one to start on. I that's think. a pretty
5: good one. <laughs> but you wouldn't know. Like, oh my you God, you no, that's why no I'm so
2: surprised. Ed, said, what about for you?
5: The casting call, <laughs> it was a weird start because I got sent the casting call from a friend who really trusted friend. I got it and I was like, okay, this is interesting. I sort of got a picture of him. I got my head shot. I was like, oh, maybe. And then I went to another friend who um, had done a bit of casting. And I was like, oh, what do you think? And she, was, she looked at it and she paused and she was just like, so what? What? And I was like, well, you know, I might, like, you know, I think. I, and she was like, you look nothing like him. <laughs> she was like, and this is this is verbatim. She was like, you can go out for it, but you'd be wasting their time and oh yours.
4: God.
5: <laughs> but but then so I so I didn't. So I was like, well, I'm not gonna go no out for way. it. I trust it. Yeah, I trust her opinion. I'm not gonna go out for it. And then it comes through my agent, right? And I'm like, well, my agent, I'm not gonna. Even though I know it, I'm not gonna get it because I've been told I look nothing like him. But my agent sent it to him. I'm not gonna pass it up. I'll do a tape for it. Do a tape. First big laugh is when I get a recall, right? Just recall. I'm like, yeah.
4: ha. Yes. Right.
5: And then get my recall, go do an impersonal audition. And that was very weird because you're in a room with like 30 other guys that look so much more like Prince William than you do. And then like a month went by. And I was like, okay, well, it's definitely gone now. Fair enough. And then we got asked to do the come in to do the read-through. Yeah. Second big laugh, right? <laughs> more aggressive, more spit in that one. And um at the start of the second day, it was good because it was a crazy room to yeah. be.
2: In. I mean, I, I was told yeah. to ask.
5: ridiculous.
1: You know, you've got Jonathan Price, Jonathan Imelda Price, Stone, Imelda, not, Dominic. Yeah. yeah.
5: Uh, all the producers left back and Netflix. Yeah. Wow. All the heads of department. There were like yeah. 150, all 200 people cheeses. in there. All the big cheeses. Mm-hmm. All the cast, it was ridiculous. Yeah. Peter and his team.
1: How do you compose yourself in that well, situation? Yeah,
5: it took a minute.
2: Yeah, I think when you're doing your scene, it's like everything does kind of dissipate yeah. and it's just you and the scene partner. And then your scene finishes and you yeah. look around you're like, oh! God, that's another stunt. <laughs> <sentence. It is. laughs> yeah, you remember where you are, but yeah. it really, I think it's just credit to probably the script and just yeah. the people and who you're acting oh, with. Oh, yeah. yeah.
5: And making you feel
1: very comfortable. Did it feel kind of good at that point with the two of you in terms of kind of this could be we could play with this we could work with this we could have fun with this absolutely
2: I remember the first chemistry read back after the read-through and I didn't know who I was going to be reading with and Robert Stern one of the casting directors was like we've got you in with Ed McVeigh because we just couldn't resist and um, just walked in and it's like such a relief Um, so you know the the two things that Kate Bone one of the casting directors said when she told me I got the job was that you know you've been cast as Kate and it's you and Ed and that was like the second, like, oh, that's so good. Because yeah, we just so were lucky, so yeah. like, I want it to be you, and yeah. vice versa.
5: Yeah, it made it cool. just made a lot of sense. It was nice because you could feel like other people were also liking what was going yeah. on. Yeah,
1: it was yeah. it was great. Do you remember where you were when you found out?
2: Yeah, I was um <laughs> I was at Legoland and I was I had got a voicemail whilst I was kind of doing the show. Um from Kate Bone and it was like, no rush, but you know, we've got news, so call me. And I was like, no rush. I'm rushing so I got kind of de-robed and then ran to get, off, get off the, the brick. Deliveries. We like, get
3: out that brick. Get out the brick. <laughs> yeah. Sharpish. Um,
2: <laughs> and went to kind of where all the like delivery lorries come in and sat on a curb and was like trying to cover my ears for all the beeping. And I was like, Hello. And you know, she just she said the word and she said I think it was verbatim, like maybe your life's facts change. We're definitely going to cast you as Kate. It makes me like emotional thinking about it. And I just, there was a lot of crying. Mm. And then obviously you have to go back and then do your job. And people are coming up like, my skip the queue's not working. And you're like,
1: oh, <laughs> like
5: go away.
2: Mad. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, I need to go home and lie down. So you're speaking to your future queen. Yeah. going yeah, don't, like... don't you know who I am? Yeah. That's exactly ego what you're inflated said. immediately. <laughs> Straight away. Don't chat to me.
1: For you coming in as well and then having this extraordinary kind of almost supermarket of departments that are there to support and help you. To prepare for this journey, for that first day of filming, you know, whatever that was. Mm.
2: You have fittings with the costume department, mm. um, and that was definitely where I really first saw it a bit. Because you, you know, you have the costume of the era as well. Yeah. And you know, you go to set, and everybody's like, "I had a belt like that, or yeah. I had boots like that," and you know, everyone and like reminisces. Your dark eyeliner. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, and you know, the details like that, mm-hmm. like they round your eyes to make them more like Kate, and you just almost like morph into this person, and then you go. Walk onto this dressed set, and every detail is just like amazing. Mm. Like you know, th- there was like a vending machine, at a university set, and every chocolate bar is like the the brand yeah. of the time. Yeah. like it's Twix, oh, wow. but you're like that's not and the that's Twix not I gonna know now. And that's not even going to be in shot.
5: Like that's gonna the camera's yeah. gonna. It's not even going to be in focus.
2: Yeah, and like you open a drawer and, and there's stuff in the drawer. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so just it really all comes together at once, <sighs> and suddenly. You know everybody's preparation means that you are the most prepared you can Mm. be when you go on to set and it's just magic everyone's
5: so passionate so passionate about their respective department it's it's really it's amazing
2: ed this this performance as well is just
1: you know it's extraordinary it comes with so much the character's got so much weight you know kind of where we find you taking (sighs) on this role in terms of what he's what he's been through and, and kind of where he is and in terms of your preparation for being that character at that moment
5: i tried to come at it from like a physical cuz I, I had so much physical stimulus with i mean he's the first royal to be fully documented from the day he was born until present yeah. so i had so much physical stimulus to to look at so i tried to like just like look at his physical journey throughout his life and just and then think about well, what can well over the period of 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 the of the script the script timeline I think like how much has he changed physically and then how can I embody that and then how does that make me feel psychologically yeah I started off with that I'm really helpful with Polly Bennett she's an absolute wizard yeah yeah so and I tried to uh, sort of attack it more from that angle and mm-hmm. then that gave me like a strong emotional sense of especially from like episode five this like really closed really insular really quite overwhelmed yeah teenager. Yeah. And then seeing how that develops throughout. And as you get more and more confident, and as you get more and more confident in and of yourself mm-hmm. and confident in your role and your and your and understand your duty. And then and I really wanted him to go from like closed to open yeah. as he gets more mm-hmm. and more like, yeah, I am who I am and, and I and I and I have a strong sense of self. Yeah. That was a really exciting journey to to play and I really enjoyed doing that. And the ups and downs of that mm-hmm. like having um like especially those bits like when I go to, on my gap year and these moments of just bliss and freedom where they're Mm. really, he's just one of the pack and he's just William and he's not this whole thing and this real like sense of release Mm. and peace and then snap cut to like going into St Andrews and crowds roaring and that instant hit the deck, bouncing, yeah. I'm now back being Prince William and everyone yeah. is, everyone is, I'm now this thing. Yeah. And then that, so those, up, those like peaks and troughs of being like, ah, a, striving for a sense of normality, but then it just getting ripped away from you because it's impossible to be normal in this family and in this life. I'd <laughs> uh, love to meet you. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, sure. Um, sorry, can you say Oh, there you go. Uh, yeah, I, I do really need to get to uh, Thank you. Thank you.
1: There you go. Okay, I right, to meet you. Have a nice day, okay? How was it filming in St Andrews, you know, having <sighs> that kind of cuz that was the real place that's yeah. where yeah. this romance yeah. started. What was it like being there?
5: Yeah, had, had an It had a different energy for yeah, sure.
2: There's a presence.
5: There was a that there was, was there? yeah. Oh, well, because like you're you're filming like we were doing a bit outside St Salvatore's Halls, which is mm. where they stayed and like, it just it felt really right yeah. and weird and just you you just get some you just felt like you were in that mm. world i mean yeah. you were in that are in that world
2: yeah
1: but it was weird because i imagine that the there was no protection mm. uh from onlookers you know you can't close off.
5: Fel- I don't know about that- you it was the first time I felt like a like a commodity which was slightly strange yeah it yeah. felt like I was this thing <laughs> okay. that people were that for the first time were like you were this thing for people to take pictures of
1: yeah did that fuel then you for the role in a way yeah, as well massively. Then in terms really of like helpful. this is
5: weird because I'm playing a role and it's like well, this is role. what William goes through every single day of his mm-hmm. life so to not have that and like let's say like weird method acting thing Mm -hmm. because you don't stop like when the cameras aren't rolling you've got people you know trying to get your attention and like talking about you and taking pictures of you and like you don't know how to deal with it
2: yeah it was definitely the first glimpse of the scale of the show yeah i think and it it was such a weird contrast all the time because you know you do a scene outside you know the hope street where where they lived and it's a rain machine
5: we were like like Two five, houses five down, doors down.
2: Five houses down
5: from their actual ha- place that they lived wow. on street. yeah street. They still had the bulletproof glass on it.
2: Yeah, it was crazy. Incredible. No yeah,
5: you could go and just see the house, and it had like thick, yeah, like inches glass on the mm. on the windows and the big windows. Yeah,
1: I found it so interesting, just of him trying to lead a, a, a normal life, being at university, and and but his his security guards just. Just always being there. I
5: know, and
1: it's just like
5: so like, lame. Oh man,
1: wow. it's like <laughs> so it uncool, isn't been it? so yeah. weird.
3: Yeah,
5: well, just that again, like that is like a metaphor that like looming presence mm. of the establishment always. When you're yeah. trying to be normal, Yeah. you're trying to just have a good time, but you've just got this this dude. It's not
2: cool when you're trying to flirt. With exactly. <laughs> you. You get, yeah. Yeah. yeah well, it's it's not. Yeah, like, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm, trying, so, to, I'm yeah. trying
5: to do my moves over
2: here,
5: <laughs> <laughs> Terry. Was that a smile? What? Did you smile when you went past? Didn't see. You're useless. You're supposed to see everything. I'm on the lookout for assassins and kidnappers. Maybe this is more important. Keep up.
1: What do you think that the character's kind of perception was of meeting Will for the first time? (laughs)
2: She's kind of trying to work him out, I think. You know, she hears lots about him. There's people that say, you know, he only dates, quote-unquote, blue bloods, you know, only the elite, and and it's all rumours and everything. But she always takes everything with a pinch of salt. And I think it's really about her wanting to find out about Will based on their own interactions. So not the tabloids, not the media, not what other people are saying, and not the buzz, but just to work out who William is as a person. So I think there's a pretty honest and stripped back approach to their interactions mm. because it's literally just about how well they get on. Mm. And that's quite nice to just play it like a a relationship or like almost, you know, a first date in their in their honeymoon period mm. because they, you know, there's no royal protocol for Kate at that point at all.
1: Do you think that's part because that was one of the things I wanted to ask as well, is what you think the the, the attraction and the pool and they see these characters seeing each other mm.
5: I think yeah I, I think it was just I mean it, a lot of it is just incredibly normal mm-hmm. and the fact that they in the same class yeah I mean she's incredibly intelligent which is great because mm. I was Struggling, struggling with you know, the workload, and I was finding it difficult in the script and everything. And just like, I just trying mm-hmm. to understand it. Character was, and then just like, yeah, we'd like see her out running. It's like, yeah. oh, we, oh, you run. That's that's cool. Oh, like, oh you swim, and it's like, oh, that, we have just so much in common. Mm. And I, that's what I really loved about it is there was nothing really like cosmic yeah, yeah. about it yeah. it was just very normal yeah. and very honest and very like oh, yeah of course they're gonna to get together because they seem so right for each you other get along. and it was just it was just gonna happen and they got along I, I i just wanted to apologize for um how I was library it was an awkward situation even more awkward than this <laughs> sorry
2: sorry okay. uh, rupert william
5: hi Finchy. hi um yeah i was asked my depth and I behave like a real idiot.
2: Thanks. I hope you patch things up with Lola.
5: God, no. No, that was dead the minute she found out I was outdoorsy. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. What do you think will be, or what is the thing that's been the most memorable experience from being part of the, the Crown? The first thing that kind of pops in your head of this whole it's wonderful just... journey so far?
2: Yeah, I mean, the first one that pops into my head was yesterday.
1: Well, Oh, um, yeah, go on.
2: <laughs> about, um, we, this was like the last thing we were filming. And... Um, Ed's got this like big lion costume mm. on his head, and um, we're like in the background of this shot, so it's not massive. You know, stealing focus. Yeah, stealing the focus. As you do. <laughs> yeah. And just before they said action, Ed accidentally like headbutted me in the face. But it meant that it was a really with the styrofoam lovely. with yeah, the styrofoam head. I didn't just funny. you know it was and an accident. Just <laughs> and um, it was like. Um, You know, so, uh, but it made for a really funny, nice background piece because we're like laughing and it's like we're close and it's, you know, like that. So we decided that the best thing to do to replicate it was if Ed headbutted me every time. (laughs) So it'd be like rolling, boom, action. And it's like, oh my God. There
5: definitely is one where it's like rolling and then action and I just bang (laughs) and just get it in there. So I hope maybe in the background you'll see me. Headbutt, <laughs>
2: yeah, Meg I didn't get me. concussed, and it was consensual headbutt. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Is it what yeah. you expected it to be? You know, I, I imagine you oh, had so kind of... much,
5: so much more. Yeah, I think. Mm. I mean, I knew it was going to be like incredible, but I, I don't think I quite knew how special mm. it was going to be and how much I've learned the journey I've seen myself go on mm. from sort of start to finish. and. How much I'm gonna take forward, and like Mm. the relationships I've made, and the friends I've made, and and hopefully and and got to work on some incredible texts, and work with incredible people, tell an incredible story, Mm. and um, the places we got to film. Yeah. And like the environments we were in, it's just so ridiculously special.
2: I mean, all we were told before we started was like, this is the best job, the best people, like, yeah. you know, this is the best thing it's to It's all start downhill. On. So we're <laughs> like, wow, anything is going to be <laughs> really disappointing now. Yeah. But it's just so true. Like you think people are just saying it to make you feel no, less nervous, but it literally is every day. We're like, yeah, another
5: yeah, amazing 10 day. out
2: of 10 day. It's like mm-hmm. surreal. Yeah. The withdrawal is going to be yeah, real. Huge. Yeah.
1: I'm Edith Bowman, and I want to give special thanks to our guests on this episode, Ed McVeigh, Meg Bellamy, William Conacher, Jonathan Wilson, and Mai L. Tukey. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and Sony Music Entertainment in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join me next time for episode eight, titled Ritz. As Princess Margaret's health declines and she's forced to drastically change her lifestyle, she takes comfort in her precious memories. One particular night in 1945 stays with her as the greatest party of all time revealed a side of the then Princess Elizabeth that remained a cherished memory between sisters. Do you know, it's been over 50 years and we've never done anything to commemorate it. What are you talking about? Sovereign. I attend VE Day celebrations every year.
5: No, I mean our VE
1: Day. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.